Hey everybody, my name's Paige and I am the Creative Arts Manager at Grace Church Barberton. We are so glad you're listening to our Sunday service podcast. This is the live recording of our Sunday message and we hope you are so encouraged, challenged, and energized by what you hear. Let's jump into our new series, Follow Me, A Journey Through Luke. What's really cool is uh, if you're newer or maybe this is your first time, like I said, we're glad you're here, but you did not just come to a church that sits in the middle or around Barberton. You came and jumped into a movement, a movement of churches, eight different campuses across three different states, one church, a movement of different campuses, and we're grateful for the opportunities that we get to invest into the movement of Grace Church even here at the Barberton campus. We just jumped into a three-year journey we're calling The Seed. The seed. We're calling it the seed because we know every journey has a beginning. And what we want to do is we want to give God the beginning, the foundation of where he wants to take us over the next 12, 50, 100 years as a campus and as a church and invest into the movement of Grace Church through that. And the three areas that we're specifically investing in, we're calling it reaching the lost, raising up disciples, and releasing leaders. We want to spend three years, the next three years, specifically investing into those tanks. And we invited you a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago at this point to make a commitment with us to jump into this journey to invest in a very unique way. And if you're here and maybe you are a part of Grace, you would call this your home. This conversation is for you. If you're newer or you're just checking things out, uh, get connected to Discovery. This conversation uh, is not necessarily something you have to take a next step in. But if you are here and you're like, how do I get invested into what's happening around Grace and around the campus, we'd invite you to grab one of these commitment cards in the back, and it just walks you through three areas that you can commit to over the next three years, praying with us, participating with us, and partnering with us. And what's really cool is we've had over 30 families already commit to this journey inside of our church family, which is really, really cool. And we're about a third of the way to the financial goal of 60,000. We're about a third of the way uh, to that goal of raising money to kind of come up with our budget in that way. And so we're really excited about what God is doing and what is happening in and amongst our campus and ultimately the community. There's some bonkers, awesome conversations happening for summer stuff that we're excited to be able to share with you in the coming weeks and be able to jump into today. And so if you're interested at all, uh, grab or go back to the wall, grab one of these. Uh, There's a QR code back there. You can look on our website. There's information all over the place, or just ask one of us if you want to learn more about what the seed is all about. But today, we're going to continue a conversation we're calling Follow Me. So take a look at this video, and we'll jump in. So here's the question we're gonna start off with. I just hit you with a lot of information. Now I'm gonna hit you with a question, okay? So write down all the information so you don't forget it. And now think about this question. What do you do on your day off? All right, what do you do on your day off? What is a perfect, pristine, 
beautiful, wonderful day off for you, right? What does it look like? For some of us, we're like, I wish I was just outside all day, right? For some of us, right, maybe it's catching up on Netflix or binge watching a series. For some of us, it's visiting with family. For some of us, it's just eating, right? I'm okay with just eating, right? Having that. Growing up, a day off looked very, very, very similar week in and week out for me and my family, especially during football season, which ranges from about August to December, actually January in our family, right? All the football fun that happens there. We literally, this would be the day off, okay? Think about elementary school. I'm in elementary school. Little Joel's running around. He has a younger brother. We run around doing all this stuff. We get off of school, we get off of school. My dad was a middle school football coach. And so on Fridays, we get off of school. He wouldn't have practice because the high school would have a game that night. And so we would go home. We would have a snack, something like corn dogs or fish sticks, something of that nature, right? Which are both awesome and fake at the same time, right? All the good stuff that's in it. We would eat a snack and then we'd get all ready to go to the high school game that night, right? Uh, we would definitely go to home games and then away games. It would depend on where it was at. But we would go to the high school football game, we would sit in the stands about an hour before watching all the warm-ups, talking to all the different people, right? Seeing coaches that my dad coached with, things of that nature. The game would start. It would be an absolute blast, right? We'd watch the game. They'd win sometimes. They'd lose sometimes, but we would be all into it. During the game, most likely the cheerleaders or different students would have these like little plastic footballs and they would throw it into the crowd. And because we were still at an age where we were cute, we got one, right? We still like would be the ones who are like, oh, those two kids up there, right? And you throw it and we'd get one, right? Which came in handy the next day because we'd go to sleep and then we'd wake up and the next day we'd turn on the TV to all the pregame football stuff and indoor living room football would start, right? <laughs> that plastic football became not just a toy we would put to the side, became the ultimate football for indoor football, living room football, which my mom learned to appreciate over time, right? We would tackle each other. We would be on the couches. We'd be doing this and that. And then at 12 o'clock, two things would happen. Lunch would be ready and football would start, right? And everything would come to a climax. And literally from 12 to about 10 in the evening, we'd be watching football. During halftime, we'd go out and throw the football. We'd come back in and watch more football. That was a day off in Joel's life growing up, right? Some of you are like, that sounds awful. And some of you are like, that's okay. I can do that, right? But the reality is, no matter who you are, a day off is something that you cherish, you look forward to, something that maybe even plan, think about, or maybe something that comes along and it kind of goes as fast as it came. What's interesting is this, Jesus, inside of this passage we're going to look at, talks about what it looks to have a day off, what it looks like to have a day off, and has a very interesting conversation around it, right? Who would have thought Jesus, of all people, would want to talk about a day off, right? But he does. And what's interesting is this, inside of this conversation, he actually gets questioned about how he is using his day off, or at least his disciples are. And inside of that, very small, seemingly unimportant conversation about a day off Jesus, Jesus reveals his humility and his authority simultaneously as ultimately the God of the universe come in flesh. And it's really powerful. And so if you turn to Luke 6, that's where we're going to start. But we're in the midst of a conversation we are calling Follow Me. And inside of this conversation, we're looking at this statement, Follow Me, 
because it is one of Jesus's most important statements and most often used statements as he goes around and invites different people to disciple to him or follow him and his life. And so we're looking at it. Because I think oftentimes this is what happens when we look at that statement or when we hear that statement, follow me, a lot of times what kind of the knee-jerk response inside of my life is, is I have to go start doing a bunch of things, right? Follow me. Okay, what do you want me to start doing, Jesus? And so for some of us, we can relate, right? Follow me was a call to the church programs. Follow me was a call to jump in the groups. Follow me was a call to jump into reading our Bible. Follow me was a call to start doing good things, But what if follow me doesn't necessarily start with activity? What if it starts with your identity? Because who you are following is who you're becoming. Who you are following is who you're becoming. And if you don't know who you're following or what they're about or why you're following them or what it looks like to respond to them, then how are you going to know who you're becoming in the process? We looked at two things, first two weeks, which encompassed Easter. The first one is this, following Jesus is an invitation to see Jesus. We started there with Peter. He's in the boats, large catch of fish. He looks at Jesus. Jesus does this amazing miracle. And he says, I'm a sinner. Get away from me. I can't be in your presence, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are the one true God. And Jesus just looks at him and says, do not be afraid. Let's go fish for people now, right? He saw Jesus. He saw him in a profoundly new and grabbing way that Peter never interacted with before. And so he decided to follow him, right? Start with his identity, who he is, who he was, and what Jesus has called him into inside of following him. Then last week, around Easter, right, we talked about Matthew's interaction with Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, wasn't liked in the society very much so, actually at all. And Jesus invites him to follow him. And we see that ultimately what Jesus was inviting him into was following Jesus is an invitation to the sick, to the ones that need him most, to all of us who are suffering from sin and ultimately need a savior, a doctor to heal us and to do something with our heart that we cannot do on our own. It's this invitation to ultimately see who Jesus is, who we are in light of that, and transformation out of that. And so this week, inside of Luke 6, we're going to look at this. Following Jesus is an invitation to his leadership and following after him as leader. Following Jesus is following his leadership inside of my life. And that's what we're going to see inside of Luke 6. Now, I'm going to preface. Eyes up here. I'm going to preface, okay? There is a lot of passages. This passage is thick with stuff. And there's some other passages we're going to work through. Just hang with me, okay? We're going to go into the deep end. We're going to pop up for a minute. We're going to go back down. We're going to pop up. Because culturally... I talk about having a day off and you think of what it means culturally to have a day off. Or for some of us, we're like, we don't have a day off. Or some of us, we have toddlers and we're like, we don't have a minute off, right? And you're like, all of that going on, right? And the reality is this. The reality is this. Our cultural understanding of a day off is going to look different than what, is, what uh, we're going to wrestle with inside of Luke 6. So I'm going to have to do some explaining to help us understand and grab with it. And then we're going to keep going, okay? Luke 6 is where we're going to start. 
And I love this passage because it kind of just comes up out of nowhere in some ways, right? Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he's hanging out with them on a day they call Sabbath. Sabbath, okay? Which in, in, in a lot of ways would be equivalent to what we would consider a day off, okay? So Luke 6, 1 through 2, this is where we're going to start. One Sabbath, okay, undisclosed, but one Sabbath, one day off, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Some scholars think it was corn, right, is the fields that they were walking through. But his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, okay? So let's just stop there, because inside of that passage already, there were things I was like, what is that? And what is that? And what does this mean, right? Culturally, it is very different. Let's start with Sabbath, okay? Because Sabbath would be equivalent to their day off, in the Jewish history, in the Jewish people, they would see Sabbath not just as a day off, but as a sacred day, as a day that ultimately they were going to stop, they were going to rest, and they were going to delight in God. Because Sabbath, right, like I said, it's not just a day off, it's not even just a Jewish holiday, it was a command that ultimately derives from, we'll look at it, the Ten Commandments. And so when they saw Sabbath coming around, right, if you are a Jewish-born individual, Sabbath was the day. You kind of, everything guided towards that. You took a day to prep for it. You took hours to prep for it, and then you sat and enjoyed it. And there were do's and don'ts on the Sabbath day, which we'll get to. But here's where it started. We got to understand where it started. So if the Sabbath was their day off, but it wasn't quite, it was a little bit more sacred and special. Well, why? Because in the beginning, we see God instituting this idea of Sabbath. God instituted, it was created by God to stop and find rest, both in him and in our rhythm. Now, hang with me. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, this is where we see the beginnings of it. Genesis 2 is what Moses writes about the creation story. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now, just stop there, okay? Eyes up here. This means that the God creator of the universe who we serve and believe in, right, our faith is in, is the one who created everything that we visually see and cannot even fathom and beyond that. So just think about that. The God of the universe just got done creating all of what you and I see in nature, all of what you and I experience and beyond, right? That's what he just got done doing. Your workday probably doesn't look much like that, right? Then it goes on to say this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done, which is really powerful, right? God, in the fullest of experiences, created everything in six days. And then on the seventh day, which he created the weeks to be as such, he decided to rest. Did God need to rest? I would say, no, he's God. He can do whatever he wants, right? He's all powerful. He's almighty, right? But there's something to the fabric of why that seventh day is so important, that he built it into the fabric of life, into the fabric of the world to stop and rest and to just take that day after all of the creative work took place. 
Why is creating a response and a rhythm so important to note inside of this? He had blessed it. He set it apart. It's holy. Why? Why is that so important for us to connect to? Well, first, this day each week inside of our rhythm encourages us to rest in God's control, sovereignty, power, and grace. He knew what he was doing, the creator of the universe. He wasn't just setting aside a day so that we could binge Netflix and, or because he needed to rest. He was setting aside a day to recognize ultimately who he is and who we are in light of that. That there's a response that you and I have towards him and what he is and what he has done. But secondly, this day each week is God giving us rest. He has built it into the fabric for us to enjoy rest and enjoy what he has created. And here's what's interesting. We look at this and some of us are like, what? Because stopping for a day of rest isn't in our cultural moment to do. We live in a 24-7 cultural moment. We live in a cultural moment that's always go, 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 go. We live in a moment where your phones are always dinging and always have the beepers going on and everything's happening, right? We go to bed and our phones are still, mm, mm, mm. And I'm like, turn it off, right? I need to go to sleep, right? We're in this cultural moment where this isn't being lived out or doesn't make sense. Because there's so much happening, so much taking place, so much going into everything. And so when you and I look at this and we see the God of the heavens resting on the seventh day, no, 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 it's not because he needed to rest. He was building something into the fabric of what it means to live on this earth as his creation. And in looking at that and in living out of that, we start to realize it's for our good that he created this and blessed it and set it apart. It's not just something that you and I have to follow and have to kind of live by and have to do because that's what we're supposed to do. God has gifted us with a day in the fabric of his creation to physically stop, rest, delight, and worship. And what I love about our God is he was thinking of you and I before we ever stepped foot on this earth. He was. That he used his authority as God of the universe to place in the fabric of creation the seven days of the week something to meet our human need. You and I need rest. You and I need to sleep. You and I need to cease from thinking about what we're working on or what we're trying to produce or what we're trying to create so that we can restore our souls, so that something can be restored physically and we can restore spiritually who we are and who he is and put them in the right place. God was thinking of us in all this. But what's interesting is this. We don't often see it as that. And the Pharisees didn't either. Right? If you look at Luke 6, 1 and 2, you see one Sabbath day, right? Jesus walking, he's picking, uh, they're picking grain or picking whatever the, the, the field had, right? And they're eating that. And the Pharisees are watching from a distance. They start like asking, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples? What, are you, what is going on here, right? Because here's what's fascinating. You and I walk into church, and Saturday for some of us is the day off. I know it's not for all of us. But on the previous week, we look at each other and say, what did you do this week? Or what did you do on your day off? Right? We talk about it. Well, I did this, or I watched that, or I, I was here, or I helped this person, or I went and did that, right? 
If you were asked in the first century by a Pharisee, what did you do on your day off? It's a trick question. You say nothing because that's what was supposed to be. Because what was created as a blessing ultimately became something broken inside of what was happening in this cultural moment. The Pharisees, they created rules, regulations, they created laws around the Sabbath day that added to what God had implemented in creation. And in this scene, four of their rules are being broken by the disciples. Not just one, but they would say four. They were reaping, they were threshing, they were winnowing, they were preparing. They would have said, those four things you can't do on Sabbath because it's breaking the law of resting and not working, right? Can you imagine that tension that sits there? All of a sudden, they're placing in front of Jesus, who's this new teacher, this new rabbi, this new guy that has all these guys following him now. Well, why are you doing this? The religious leaders ask. And here's what's interesting, right? Like I said last week, we can demonize the Pharisees a lot. You can point them out and say, they're the bad guys, right? My son, we we do the Bible app for kids, and they have scenes where Pharisees are talking to Jesus, and he's like, those are the bad guys. They're the mean guys. I'm like, yeah, they're the mean guys, right? But here's the reality. It's really easy to be one, and it's really easy to demonize them, and yet they were trying to, in all of their effort, all their might, it's where they lost sight, be good. They were trying to play it out. They were trying to figure it out. And in the process, they lost sight of ultimately what God had in store or what God wanted from them. Because in Exodus 20, they would have read this. Exodus 20, 8 through 11, this is embedded in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, right? Which would have been in response to God created the heavens and the earth, he rested, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So now he's in this relationship with Israel, with the Jewish people, and he's telling them, remember the Sabbath day, remember it, it was made for you, it was a blessing, it's set apart, it's something I even set the example of for you, keep it holy, And then it goes on. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a day to remember who I am and who you are and it's a day for you to delight in because you get to rest. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns, which would have been radical, would have been a radical thing that you would let your servants have a day off, foreigners have a day off, your women in the society, your kids in the society to have a day off, that that would have been radical in that context. And God's like, let it happen. It's a blessing. And he continues, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And he's like, I've blessed this. I've made it holy. Enjoy it. And what the Pharisees did is ultimately inside of that they built things around it that were not purposed for it. They built in some 40-some rules that needed to be applied for you to be in line with keeping the Sabbath, keeping this day set apart, holy, keeping this day pure. And here's what I want you to see. Because in that command, it says, keep it holy, right? But yet, the further we get, the more we forget. The further we get from it, the more we forget. 
The Pharisees, as religious leaders, decided to take matters into their own hands. They created rules around the Sabbath, which gave it definition as holy. This is what it means. They became the king of their own spiritual life, in a sense. And they became the ones that ultimately dictated how you're supposed to lean into this instead of allowing God to dictate that. And ultimately, inside of that, the further they got from the original understanding of it, the more they forgot what it was for. How easy is that to do, right? The further you get from learning something, the further you get from experiencing something, right? The further you get from it, the more you forget what that was like. The further you get from that moment of grace and mercy, right? We forget how to lavish that. The further we get from that learned lesson, right? The further we get from seeing that play out in our life. They forgot the relationship with God in place of that. They put rules and regulations that did not exist in God's heart for that day, right? How easily, how easily can we make something complicated that was meant to be simple, right? That, that, that's, I'm, I, I told you last week, I, I empathize with the Pharisees because I struggle with that. I, I so easily forget and I put things in place of my relationship with God that are supposed to do something for me, but never leave me feeling satisfied. These guys are trying to be good. They're trying to fulfill the thing. They're trying to do what they're trying to do. And in place of that, they're putting a wall between them and God and others and God. And the pride and the arrogance that swelled up in them for notoriety and the public to see them got in place of them serving God in the midst of it. We tend to make complicated what is simple. God invited Israel to set aside a day of rest for relationship and rhythm, and they set aside a day for rules and regulations. I'm devil's advocate. I'm like, well, if they were breaking the Sabbath law, what were you doing spying on them and putting the rules into place and asking the questions? Aren't you working there too, right? It's so easy to forget ultimately why, who God is and what he's done for us and why he's invited us into relationship with him. Now the story continues, okay? That's Sabbath, Pharisees, story continues. Jesus responds. I always love Jesus' response. He answered them with a question, very Jesus style. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? And they would have known it. You and I right? We may not know that story. We may not be able to go back to it, right? Even I had to look back and say, what is he talking about? But the Pharisees would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was like that calling card, you know, like when a family member, right? Remember what happened last Christmas? You don't even have to think about what happened last Christmas. You know what happened last Christmas. It pops up right there. Jesus like, you remember what David did? They would have been like, oh no, he's going there. And then says this, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat and he also gave some to his companions. And here's what I want you to see in this. We're not gonna dive into the nitty gritty of this. What Jesus was doing was putting them into a conundrum. He's putting them into a conundrum. He's like, how can you call me out and yet King David, who you love, who you quote, who wrote all these psalms, who wrote all of these beautiful liturgies, right? All of the stuff that you have, 
David, you give that to, and it's just amazing and rich and awesome. You're going to call me out? Well, didn't he do something similar? Are you going to deny him? Are you going to call him out? And they would have been trapped. Because we don't call King David out. Right? That's, that's the forefather. That's the guy. That's, that's where the Messiah is going to come from, is from David's line. We're not going to call that guy out. And so all of a sudden, they're kind of in this mess. The Pharisees are like, dang it. And it's really easy, it's really easy when Jesus calls things to the table, if you're a Pharisee, right, to be really frustrated by it. Oh, I don't like that. He's calling me out. I don't like that. That's right in the heart. I don't like that. It doesn't feel great. Verse 5 is where we're going to land. I'm going to skip it. It continues in verse 6. This is where Luke goes. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now listen, it's another Sabbath day. It's not the same Sabbath day. But as the Sabbath goes, right, there are things you do and you don't do. And it's law inside of the first century Jew. Right? It's law inside of their culture. And so if you get caught doing it, right, there's repercussions. We're, we're going to get you for that. Right? And so they're watching Jesus. Can you just imagine the scene? He's hanging out, sees this man who has a shriveled hand. Probably for years, maybe he was probably born with the shriveled hand, right? He walks by him, and the Pharisees are in the background, like, let's just see what he does so we can accuse him again. Let's just see what happens so that we can make a case against him. And then Jesus continues, he knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. I love Jesus' response. He goes right at him with a question, and then he tells this guy with the shriveled hands, get up, stand up front, in front of everybody, right? Jesus is like, we're gonna make a bold statement here, right? We're gonna make a scene happen. We're going to make sure they know who I am and what I'm all about, so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? Another conundrum question, right? Because they would say, do good. Do what's lawful. You save a life, right? You wouldn't want to hurt it. And there was a bunch of different rules underneath of that, what you could and couldn't do. And the Pharisees are like, why wouldn't you just heal him on another day, Jesus? What are you trying to do with this? Then it continues. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hands. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Right? They're already starting. They're frustrated with this guy. The new teacher, the new guy on the block, the re religious guru. He's going to start breaking rules. He's going to start putting himself in the place of us. He's going to start leading a gathering and he's going to start healing on the Sabbath and he's going to start questioning us. What is this? And they're probably frustrated. They're probably wondering what in the world is going on. But here's the reality. I love what Jesus says. He says, the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save a life or destroy it. What I love about Jesus, he's not afraid to make a point. He's not afraid to call people to ultimately recognize who he is and what he's come to do. And I love the point he makes because it's all about following him. 
The Sabbath was created for good, yes. But in the invitation that he gives in verse 5, what he's ultimately saying is, follow me. That what you're doing and what you're playing out and what's going on, right, isn't following after me. It's doing what you want to do. It's putting in place what you want to put in place. Following me looks different. It looks different because ultimately the result is good fleshes out of it. This is what he says in verse 5. Luke 6, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Which you and I look at, we're like, okay, cool, right? I skim past this verse all the time. There's a lot packed into it. Because here's the reality. Jesus didn't heal this man on the Sabbath to make a Sabbath point. He healed this man on the Sabbath to make a point about himself and ultimately reveal who he is and what he has come to do in light of all of us. And he starts in a profound way. He says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Hang with me. Jesus in the New Testament most often referred to himself as the son of man. Most everybody else would refer to Jesus as Christ or Messiah. He himself would most refer to himself as the son of man. Now listen, here's the delineation, right? Christ Messiah would have been a proper term, would have been kind of the one that people would have held esteem. That's the guy, that's the one, right? That's like the Mr. and Mrs. title, right? And he's going by a first name basis. I have kids that come out of here all the time, right? And, and even adults, and they're like, Pastor Joel, Pastor Joel. And I'm like, just call me Joel, right? Uh, some some uh, parents will be like, call him Pastor Joel. And I'm like, it's okay, just call me Joel, right? What Jesus is doing here, he's like, just, I'm the son of man. Recognize that first, I'm the son of man. You understand that, I'm the son of man. Yes, I'm the Messiah in Christ. Yes, we're gonna get to another title, Lord. But understand me as the son of man because there's a bunch of power packed into that. What's up with the son of man? What's up with the son of man and what does that mean and what does that look like? Here's the reality. The story of God and the story of you and I go like this. He created us. He created us to be heirs in his likeness, in his image, to rule and have dominion and to work in his creation and be in relationship with him. Sin distorted that. It separated it from us. We got deceived thinking that we could be our own gods and create and control in our own way. And we see that throughout the story of humanity taking place. We see destruction and evil come out of that because we thought we could be on our own and be our own kings and queens and rule this earth just fine and put ourselves in place of him. Well, God knew what was coming and he put in place someone to step in the gap for you and I. Genesis 3, right after the fall, this is what God said to the serpent who is Satan, the devil. Because you have done this, right? He's deceived Adam and Eve. Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. In the kid's Bible app, the snake is blue. My son loves the blue snake, right? He loves looking at the blue snake and the story of the blue snake. And he always asks, why are they... Why do snakes crawl on their bellies? Like, it's because of this, right? This is what happens, right? He's cursed above all livestock, all wild animals. And then God comes down and he gives us hope. Not just I curse you and just kind of go over here, but I will put eminity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
What God is ultimately saying is there will be someone who will come and fulfill what my creation of humans could not because they were deceived. There is someone who's going to come and sit in the seat and he is going to sit in the throne next to me and he's going to be the one to restore all of humanity to me. There will be one that will crush the head and his heel will be struck. And we ultimately see that in the person of Jesus. That Jesus came, lived the life you and I could not live. He lived it perfectly. He lived it in such a way that love and service and truth and justice and mercy were all bottled up and perfectly explained and perfectly exampled out through him. God was demonstrated perfectly in the person of Jesus because he was 100% God, 100% man. And he lived a life that you and I could not live. And then he died the death that you and I deserve. And that death is the strike in the heel But the crush of the head came on Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And this is what he says right before he takes that heel strike in Luke 22. This is him at trial right before his crucifixion. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So these are religious guys, the guys that looked and said, how can we get him? This is how they got him in the court Right before his death on the cross, Jesus was laid before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us, right? Not like Jesus wasn't telling them already as he was walking around, right? But that was the key thing they wanted to get him on. You're blaspheming. You're not the God of the universe. You come and tell us you're Messiah. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, listen, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And what he is saying is this, I, the divine one, the son of God, literally the son of God, um, God in the flesh came down and humbled myself, put on humanity and not just humbled myself to humanity and lived a life in the messiness of this earth, but I went all the way to serve. I went all the way to lay down my life for you so that in laying down my life, which I willingly do, I will pick it up Easter Sunday, rise again and I will sit at the right hand of God, the Father. I am the Son of Man. I'm the one that came to restore you. I'm the one that came to redeem you. I'm the one that came to rescue you. I'm the one that came to release you from evil, death, and sin. I am that one. And so what he was saying is this, I'm not just the Messiah, but I'm the one in which you guys could not be. And I came so that you would come and follow after me and you could live life in and through me and then for eternity live with me. That is what it means to be the son of man. You and I cannot fulfill that in and of ourselves. What Jesus is saying is profound and it's beautiful because what he ultimately is saying in the context of what we're looking at is this. I'm the son of man. I've come to defeat the enemy. I've come to do what you could not do. Jesus is the son of man. He is the savior who would meet our greatest need. That Jesus, as the Son of Man, came to give us eternal rest. Right? Our greatest need, yeah, yeah, it's to rest every seventh day, of course. That's a good need to have, sleep eight hours a night. But what Jesus came to do was meet the greatest of needs, which is heart transformation. You and I are infected with that sickness we call sin, where a misplaced identity, believing we're kings and queens, leads to misplaced activity. And in that sin, 
we start to live out thinking we can do this on our own. What Jesus did is he said, I came to lay down my life, live as the son of man, do for you what you cannot do for yourself and gain you eternal rest because in the cross and resurrection, you and I, you and I, we have a new identity, new community, a new mission. We can rest in the fact that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And here's the reality. What I love about him stating this around the idea of Sabbath is he is directly saying, I have met the greatest of human needs, which is your salvation. Because here's the reality, you and I, we struggle to understand who we are in light of who he is. John Mark Comer, he's talking about the Sabbath in context of this, or this uh, um, quote. He says, one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is living into both our potential and our limitations. Here's the reality. You and I, we talk about our potential. Our culture talks about our potential all the time. In Jesus, we have a lot of potential. By grace, he's gifted us. By grace, he's, pow- he's empowered us to live out of the spirit. But you and I are his created beings. There are limitations. And what Sabbath was meant to do was remind us of the limitations that we have and ultimately run to him in that. And what he is saying here is this. You have limits. You have limits. Your sin is infecting your heart and your life, and you can do nothing about it. You can't. And you're going to try, and you're going to run the rat race of life, and you're going to try to gain an identity over here. Well, if I invest in this, work at this, do this, go to this, sports this, then maybe I can find a name for myself. Well, if I just get together with this relationship, this community, do this thing, run this lifestyle, maybe I can find myself. Well, if I could just get out of the, the hole I'm in and if I could just find my purpose and kind of attach it to this, then, then I'll be able to kind of salvage my life. What Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. It's not running faster. It's resting in me. Salvation is not found in running faster. It's found in resting in me as your eternal salvation. I love Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is what Matthew writes about Jesus. This is Jesus saying this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Listen, there's such, such beauty to this passage such beauty. And what I love about this passage, if you look in your scriptures in your Bible, Matthew 11 finishes with this. Matthew 12 is the parallel story to Luke 6. Interesting, Matthew. Because what Matthew is saying is in Jesus, there is rest in your soul. What Jesus is saying is there's rest for your soul when you connect it to life with me. When you connect your life to me, there's rest for your soul. You were created to rest in relationship with me. You were created to have an identity that was built into me. You were created with community, perfect community with me and created with a perfect purpose. And sin severed that. And we have been running as fast as we can away from God, trying to find out where else we can build that into. We're running faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And nothing's satisfying. So we end up over here and 
rough relationships. We end up over here in addiction. We end up over here and we're trying to satisfy through this work thing and working however many hours and getting this many things and da, 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 da. It's not satisfying. And Jesus came, he said, I am the only one who does. I'm the one who've rescued you, rescued you into an eternal rest. You don't have to worry about your identity. It's new in me. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of the king. You you don't have to worry about community. There is a friendship to be had with me, and there's others who are following after me that want to embrace you in that. Not always perfectly, I get, but want to embrace you in that. And purpose, there's purpose no matter what you do for a job, you can find purpose and mission inside of that. And for some of us, following Jesus starts by resting in Jesus as my Savior. Actually, for all of us, it does. Following Jesus starts by resting in Jesus. Jesus, yes, he's concerned about the Sabbath day and and practicing it, and he wants us to rest. But if we don't understand our rest in him, we'll even use Sabbath in the practice of Sabbath as a way to try to find our rest. If I just do it well enough, if I just do it good enough, if I just do it in a manner that makes sense, he's like, no, 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 no. You're resting in something that only gives you partial momentary rest, rest in me. For some of us, it's saying yes to Jesus. You end up stop running the rat race of trying to find your identity, your community, your mission, trying to find who you are, trying to save yourself. Well, if I just get this or that. Listen, for me personally, this hit me, right? This weekend was long and exhausting, and there was a, there's a lot of things that were tied to why I'm tired. When I'm tired, I forget who I am. I start to live out of an improper misunderstanding of my identity. When I connect that to my salvation and eternity, Jesus is like, remember who you are. You find rest in me. Spend time with me. I'm gentle and humble. I will take you where you're at, and I'll take you where you need to go. You have to dust yourself off before you walk in. For some of us, we're running and running and running and running and running, and spiritually, we're exhausted. Mentally, we're exhausted. Physically, we're exhausted. We're just trying to figure out who, what, when, where, and Jesus is like, I'm here. I've done it for you. But he doesn't just stop there. That's the Son of Man. Then he goes on and says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this would have been a draw-dropping statement. Jesus, in this statement, would be claiming to be God. And the Pharisees would have been like, oh my gosh, he went there. On the Lord of the Sabbath, literally, that title Lord, Adonai, is the Greek, means supreme leader, would have also been attached to the name of God, Yahweh. They knew exactly what he was saying. Not only am I God, but I'm the one who created and put into the fabric Sabbath. So I know what's right and I know what's wrong inside of that. He would have been putting the trump card on top of this whole conversation. And the reality is this. Jesus saying this means that Sabbath is less about following rules and more about recognizing that he is Lord. Jesus is God and he is Lord of our life if he is God. And what the reality is, I can be really good at being Lord of my own life. I can. 
I can be really good at trying to lead my own life, do my own life. I think it's interesting. He says the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. We connect to the Son of Man thing. We're like, thank you, Jesus. Then he says Lord of Sabbath. And some of us are like, oh, I don't know. I kind of like having control over my life. It's cool he saved me and all, but doing day in and day out with Jesus is a little, um, I'm not sure. I think I got a handle on it. And he's saying this and he's saying, I've saved you. And in saving you, I'm asking you to trust me with your life. That I should be the leader and I should be the Lord. And he uses an example in Matthew 11. He says, my yoke is easy. You know what a yoke is? They put it on an oxen. You have two oxen. They put this little like wooden thing on to connect them. They would plow fields. What he's saying is this in that illustration. Let me lead you. My yoke is easy. Let me lead you. When I try to lead my life, I steer the other direction. When I try to take control, when I try to coerce God into doing this for me or trying to do it on my own, I find myself struggling, wrestling, grinding through because I'm not allowing him to lead me. I'm not allowing him to lead me into this easy, restful learning with him as teacher and Lord. And that's where some of us are at. That's where some of us are at. Because if I trust Jesus with my salvation, I should trust Jesus with my lifestyle, my life, and how I live. I think it's interesting, right? Some of us can be the Lord of our own life and we can follow religiosity and moralism. And others of us can follow feelings and freedom. That's your life to me. Jesus says, follow me in this. Attach your life to me. Look to me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And inside of that, I will take you where you need to go. Let me lead by example. Sometimes we try to get over, get over here. John Mark Comer would continue, and he says this. He says, but for Jesus, leadership isn't about coercion or control. It's about example and invitation. He invites you to follow him. He is the better ox. And if you let him lead, he's going to lead you into rest for your souls. He's going to lead you into love toward others. He's going to lead you to serve in the midst of it. I want to invite the worship team up, finish with the last song. But here's the reality. The question I want to leave us on is this. Is Jesus actually the leader of my life? Is Jesus actually the leader of my life? Or is he just a pawn in my game? Because listen, I don't think it's coincidence he tied Son of Man to Lord of the Sabbath. Those have two very distinct implications to it. And he's one and the same. So for some of us, we need to start where Jesus started. I am the Son of Man. And inviting him to lead my life is inviting him to be the Savior of my life and to rest in him. Right? It's not just like now I can kick back and watch Netflix kind of rest. It's like I can rest. I know who I am. I know I'm forgiven. I know eternally where I'm at. I, I know exactly who I'm supposed to be with. 
I know, I know where my purpose and meaning is. I, I don't have to worry if I'm loved or not. He loves me with a love that is uncomparable. He has compassion towards me. And yet, he's going to lead me into what's better and more. For some of us, it starts there, recognizing you're not the son of man. He is. You cannot sit on that throne. He is already. And humbly submitting your life to him. But for others of us, maybe we've made that decision. Maybe he is that for us. But day to day, is he actually the leader of your life? When you walk into school, students, is he the one leading your life? Or are you? Or is your buddy? Or your friend over here? Is he leading your life as you go into the workplace? Is he leading your life as you walk into the house with your spouse and kids? Is he leading your life when there's nothing going on around you and you just have time with him? Is he leading your life when things are going chaotically? Following his invitation is an example. Because here's the reality. When I follow Jesus as my leader, this is what he did. He set the example and invites me to follow him as such. And Jesus as leader taught me that leadership is all about laying down my life. And the more that I attach myself to him and let him drive the yoke, the more I learn that following him is laying down my life. Because that's what my Lord did for all of us. And as I learn what laying down my life looks like in love and in truth and grace, then I start to, in activity, respond to people in front of me in that way. I start to walk into my house and not wonder who's here for me and did they realize how terrible of a day I had and did they realize I need all of this attention but no, I'm going to attentively be present to my spouse and my kids and serve them because that's what my Lord did for me. If he's the leader of my life, that's what it looks like. My workplace, oh man, they're not paying me well enough, they're not giving me enough, they're not doing enough, they don't know how much I do for them. Jesus would walk in and say, what does it look like to lay down your life for your coworkers? So they would see something different. They would see something that's unique. They would see something that looks off, but man, is attractive. But what would it look like to, in our neighborhoods, not just use our house as a castle to run into, which I do all the time, right? But as an opportunity field of following Jesus' leadership to serve and lay down my life to my neighbors so that they would see Jesus in a whole unique and different way. And here's the reality. When I say yes to following Jesus and I'm tied to the hip, it's not always going to make sense. Following him as Lord means there's going to be moments where I'm jerked back into where the yoke is going and where we're going where my lifestyle doesn't agree or where my life isn't lined up and he's going to reposition and keep inviting me in. He's gracious and humble in heart. Here's my invitation. You're like, what do I do with this? Here's my invitation. I would love, I'm terrible at this, so this is an invitation for me too. I would love for you to carve out a 24-hour period of rest sometimes this week. And you're like, huh? 
Doesn't mean you have to cancel things. Doesn't mean that you can't go to the birthday party. But a day where you're focused on resting, stopping, delighting. And I challenge you to ask Jesus where he is not Lord in your life yet. Don't just use it as a day to Netflix, hang out. Use it as a day. If it's not 24, do 24 minutes. Do an hour. Do two hours. Be with him. Ask him on that day, where am, are you not Lord in my life? And how can we lean into that? Because I tell you this, once you rest and fixate on him, Physically, you will be open spiritually to where he's going to lead you. When I'm tired, I'm angry. And I'm upset, and I think I can do life on my own. I just is. Ask my wife. Just is. When I'm rested, I realize who he is, what he's done for me. Take it. Take it and ask him to lead you in your life. Father, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for letting us talk about you openly and be able to share with you. Father, just uh, I pray that you would uh, lead this with grace and mercy, challenge our hearts, give us an open mind and open heart to where you want to lead. And Father, would you just guide us in that process? You are our Savior and our Lord. We just ask that you would lead us there. Pray this in your name. Amen. joining us this week. If you'd like to reach out and connect with us or hear more about Grace Church, you can head to barberton.gracechurches.org for more information. We meet in person at 1030 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 629 Wesleyan Avenue in Barberton. Have a great day.